The Bible passage that we'll be reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 2. The letter of Galatians chapter 2, the verses 11 to 21. And we'll be focusing in on verse 20. Galatians 2, the verses 11 to 21. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played a hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, lived in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain." We'll be focusing on verse 20 there. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, in 1856, John Payton was on the cusp of a new life. For the last two years, the Scottish Reformed Presbyterian Church had been appealing for a missionary to go to the New Hebrides to work among the people who were living there. Unfortunately, that region of the world had a poor reputation. Not too many years before, two missionaries had gone out from their midst only to have their lives cut short by the cannibals who lived on this new mission field. They landed on the shore and they were killed and eaten only minutes after they arrived. In the years that followed, a missionary by the name of Inglis had gone and had great success. But the fear surrounding this mission field went unabated. No missionaries were willing to go that way because they were so afraid about what might happen. For two years, the Scottish Reformed Presbyterian Church pleaded with people to go, but no one volunteered. And John Payton, who had been studying ministry and medicine, couldn't bear it. And so he volunteered himself. As he went from place to place raising funds, as so many people we know do, they'll go from church to church and they'll talk about where they're going and they'll ask people to 
help them and support them. As he went from place to place raising funds, many people tried to persuade him not to go. He wrote about one man in the name of Mr. Dixon who had stood out in his mind during these years with his protests. The cannibals, he said. You'll be eaten by the cannibals. But Peyton wouldn't be dissuaded. Mr. Dixon, he said. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, I'll, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see, where others saw death and disaster, John Payton saw the potential for new life. He saw hope. He saw a chance for the proclamation of the gospel and the redemption of many. And he took it. Because he knew that his hope was built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He saw the time-honored reality of our text today in his willingness to lay down his life. He saw that death of the old leads to the life of the new in Christ. And today we'll look at three aspects of this as we find them in our passage. The crucified life, the exchanged life, and the life of faith. Today is the beginning of a new year. And each and every one of you, each and every one of us, is standing on the cusp of a new start to life. We may not be standing in the same way, shape, or form that John Payton was, but we are standing on a new start to life. Every year brings with it a sense of freshness. If you've had a bad year, you're looking forward in the hope that this will be a good year. If you've had a good year, you're looking forward in hope that this year will be better. There's so much potential in the upcoming months. Many of you students will be rounding off your semesters, while you who are in the workforce will be gearing up for a new year of planting crops, doing sales, getting exercise, or sharpening your mind. You have high hopes and expectations of this new year. Or at least you hope that you'll get through this year as a better person than last year. But that's where we run into trouble, isn't it? Because when we enter into a new year with big plans, big hopes, big expectations, we're often thinking, I hope that I can be a better person this year. I know this to be true for myself just as much for, as for anyone else. That's the pattern of our, that our human nature slips into. I'll exercise more, I'll eat less, I'll be more faithful and devoted, I'll quit smoking, I'll stop looking at things I ought not to. I'll go to bed on time. I'll be more focused and less distractible at work or at school. But what do we find happening within the month for so many, for the vast majority, these same patterns creep back into our lives. And by the time May rolls around, we're really looking forward to that next fresh start after our summer holidays, if we get any. 
In the passages leading up to our verse, we get the Apostle Paul speaking to a group of believers throughout Galatia. This is actually the only letter in the New Testament which is specifically addressed to a number of churches. He says to the churches in Galatia. It's, it's a regional letter. There were other letters which were known as encyclicals, but they were addressed to a particular church. This book shows that there was a regional doctrinal issue that had cropped up in the church. And that, we find out, was the issue of works righteousness. The Galatians had started off well. They believed in a gospel that was based on faith in Jesus Christ alone. But as the years went on, they more gradually drifted they gradually drifted off course from reliance on Jesus Christ to reliance on their own works. And the symptoms of their problems were what they were describing here earlier in the chapter. The fact that they were making people be circumcised, following other ceremonies of the Jewish law, in addition to their faith. They were afraid to be caught eating with people who were considered to be unclean. They added more works to themselves as a requirement in addition to faith in Christ for entry into the kingdom of heaven. They expected their works carried out in their lives to be what pleased God. The difficulty with this line of thinking is that our lives in their entirety already belong to God. As God tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So they had this idea in their mind. And they were busy working it out to the detriment of those who are around them. But Paul, on the other hand, was trying to teach the Galatians here that what they were doing was not enough. By trying to earn God's favor leading to salvation, but still trying to stay in control to a certain extent, they were trying to pay God off with what was already rightfully His. Consider someone who gets caught breaking into a homeowner's safe and tries to bribe the homeowner to let him off with his own money. I'll give you 10% of the take. It's a ridiculous thought, isn't it? Yet that's what the Galatians were trying to accomplish when they approached life in this way. Paul says, that's not right. What you need to understand is that you need to surrender all of your life. Don't just pick and choose particular areas in which you're going to transform, in which you're going to grow in your work's righteousness. But you need to surrender all of your life. Simple works is not enough. You need to say in faith, I have been crucified with Christ. But what does this mean? When we come to Christ, we're coming to the cross. We don't have a gospel that simply consists of a good person whose life we have to emulate. We don't have someone who we simply have to follow as a pattern, who we simply have to become a better person to model. 
We're coming to a person who has done for us what we could not do. We couldn't bear the weight of God's wrath against our sin. We can't make payment for it. All we can do of ourselves is to try offer to God what already belongs to Him in the first place. And that's not going to be enough. This is where what Christ has done for us on the cross becomes truly beautiful for us. You see, the grace of God in you see the grace of God in that He allows for Christ to bear the cost what you yourself could not pay. This verse which speaks so powerfully of sin and our inability also speaks powerfully of the Savior's love for us. He has accomplished everything on our behalf. And we need to recognize that apart from the knowledge of that grace, apart from the recognition of what He does, we can't fight sin. To die with Christ means that we relinquish this control over our lives. We no longer try to take our fate into our own hands, but we stand with our gaze fixed on the cross where alone our salvation comes from. We die to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we find our identity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has demanded everything, and he supplies what he demands. All that is left for us is to surrender our control and accept the free gift of grace that's offered to us. For different people, this comes out in different ways. James Calvert, a missionary to Fiji, expressed this in response to the protest of a captain who took him on a voyage. The captain said, you'll lose your life and the lives of those who are with you if you go among such savages. Calvert only replied, we died before we came here. Do you recognize this, brothers and sisters? As we stand on the brink of a new year, we surrender our old life and we put to death our old nature. Everything that made us what we were, we turn over to Christ. All of our sinful patterns of life, we surrender. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we put it to death. And as we enter into this new year, we become image bearers of this Christ who gave up everything in order that he might take hold of us. We're standing on the cusp of a new year. Let's now say to those who are around us, we died before we came here. This brings us into the second point, the exchanged life. We read in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 7, that Jesus was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and was numbered with the transgressors. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All this was done for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the fullness of Christ that's taken hold of us. His chastisement brought us peace. And so we no longer need to live in fear, but we can live in confidence. But hold on, you may say. What about sin? Does this mean that we can carry on with it? Clearly not. We read in Romans 6, the verses 1 to 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Having died with Christ, having died before we came here, we now have new life in Christ. 
We have our identity in Christ. And so, as our passage so boldly states, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have died. And so my life has been exchanged. It's no longer my own to treat as I see fit, to indulge my sinful desires, or to continue in sin. Nor can I sit back and do nothing. And that's something we ought to consider for the new year. Beloved, you cannot live in a vacuum. You cannot live in a vacuum. Jesus gives an example of this in one of his parables, Matthew 12, 43 to 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. When you try to make a break with your old nature, there's a good chance that if you take a a secular approach, and you take all the proper steps, you'll meet with a decent amount of success for a little while. You'll even be able to have your house nice and clean and emptied out, swept and everything put in its place. This is a picture of someone who's managed to drive out his troubles for a time. And from the outside, and maybe even in his own mind, everything seems to be in order. But he hasn't refilled what was left behind. You may have overcome your personal demon for a time, but you cannot live in a vacuum. That demon will come back with seven more, more wicked than himself. You'll return to your sin. And as Jesus says, the last state of such a person is worse than the first. So what's the alternative? As we saw in our text this morning, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There are three ways in which we die to ourselves and live to Christ. Christian worship, Christian living, and Christian service. In the first, Christian worship, we're reminded that we need to feed the fire that's stoked in us. Ask yourselves these three questions this year. Do I love God? Do I love His Word? Do I love his people? Cultivate these loves. Every relationship requires work. Put yourself into situations in which you can exercise these principles. If I care for my wife, but I refuse to put myself into a position in which I can express my love for her, you can be sure that my relationship with her will wither and die. How much more is that the case with God? Do we read His Word? Do we put ourselves into situations in which we can praise God and express our love for Him, despite how grumpy we might be with each other from one day to another? Do we spend time in prayer and join in worship with our families and with our fellow saints? Do I replace the gap in my life that cutting out sin has created with a holy reverence for God? A worshipful praise. In our day-to-day living, we can find that Christ himself lives through us. 
How do we know this? We find proof of this in Galatians 5. Jesus has gone to heaven, but he told his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to them. By his Holy Spirit, Christ begins to live his life through us. And we find evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives through the fruit that his work bears. Cultivate that fruit which is brought into your life. Cultivate opportunities to show that fruit. Let the world see evidence in your living that he is granting you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These represent the character qualities of Christ himself. Know that when you cultivate these, it's Christ who's at work through you. It's Christ who is living in you. And finally, Christian service. In Romans 15, verse 18, Paul writes, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 2 Timothy, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me. Note the pattern that's happening here. Christian service is God working through us. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members individually. When we carry out our acts of Christian service within the community, within our church circles, among our unbelieving acquaintances, when we lift them up in prayer and when we act to bring them aid, we're being the hands and the feet of Christ. It's Christ who is working through us. It's Christ who is showing his love. And whether we are givers or recipients of this love, we ought not to primarily think of the one who's the giver of the gift as the one who should be thanked, but we should recognize that it's Christ who should be thanked, as he is the one who's carrying out that work. And if we feel like we're doing a thankless task in the church, if we feel like we're stepping up to the plate and no one else appreciates what we're doing, let this be our solace as well. Let this be our spur as we look ahead to get involved in new things. Christ is working in me and through me and for me, and that is enough. I have exchanged my life. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The final aspect of our passage is how we live in relation to this great exchange that's taken place. Uh, we read in our text, I have been crucified with Christ. Our passage calls us today to look ahead to this new year, giving up our old selves and surrendering wholly to Christ, in Him having been saved and redeemed. Confess that this is your hope and conviction. I have been crucified with Christ. But don't leave it at that. Recognize what now follows. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And give praise to our Lord for the work that he accomplishes through us. But more than that, don't just leave it there. More than that, recognize how you live your life. 
The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. The gospel which we receive, the good news that we find is here and always grounded in Christ's love. When we carry out our day-to-day tasks, when we serve in the church and community and in the town of Owen Sound, when we devote ourselves to one another in love and good works, it's always in the knowledge that we belong to Jesus Christ, that our identity is in Jesus Christ, and that we're doing this out of that and not because we need to earn anything. We live a life of full confidence that Christ has already accomplished everything we need for our salvation. Every action is established in a sure footing of the love of our older brother, our captain, and our king. It's as the beloved words of our hymn put it, in all the strife of mortal life, our feet shall stand securely. Temptation's hour shall lose its power, for thou shalt guard us surely. O God, each day direct our way, renew us by thy spirit, until we stand at thy right hand, through Jesus' saving merits. We can embrace the love of Christ with utmost confidence because he was willing to die for us. And if he died for us, will he not more freely give us all things? It's in this confidence, in the confidence that we find in these final passages, I live by faith, this life, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's this confidence that leads men to be transformed. That led men like Peyton to go to the cannibals, firmly established in the love of his Lord and Savior. It's this confidence that spurs men on throughout the world and allows them to accomplish much. To accomplish many beautiful things for the kingdom of God. Peyton wrote, Recall what the gospel has done for the near kindred of these same aborigines. This is years later, after the fact. In our own Anitium, 3,500 cannibals have been led to renounce their heathenism. In Fiji, 79,000 cannibals have been brought under the influence of the gospel. And 13,000 members of the churches are professing to live and work for Jesus. In Samoa, 34,000 cannibals have professed Christianity. And in 19 years, its college sent forth 206 native teachers and evangelists. On our new Hebrides, more than 12,000 cannibals have been brought to sit at the feet of Christ. Though I mean not to say that they are all model Christians. And 133 of the natives have been trained and sent forth as teachers and preachers of the gospel. Had Christ been brought in the same way into the heart and life of the Aborigines by the Christians of Australia and of Britain, Equally blessed results would as surely have followed, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God blesses our confidence and our love for our Lord Jesus Christ, living out of that love. And it's this confidence that we can look ahead in faith in the upcoming year. Certainly we might not preach to cannibals, although God may very well raise up some of you in this, in this church here to preach the farthest corner of the globes. And I pray he does. But even in our day-to-day lives, raising up the next generation and doing faithful service at home, 
God blesses us and keeps us and makes his face shine upon us because we find ourselves firmly rooted in the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't, go, don't look ahead to this year hoping to be better people. Rather, look ahead knowing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion and live in the confidence that being rooted in the love of our older brother, Jesus, brings. Amen.